Well, hey, everyone. Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box, and I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church. And so glad that you have uh, joined us uh, this morning. Uh, all, that goes to all of us. Way to, way to you know, push through the elements, whether marathon or whatever it is that, that could keep you from being here. It's fun to gather together as a family and, and uh, praise our God and hear from Him and His Word. And looking forward to our, our time together this morning. Um, but before I get into the message, let me just share a little story uh, that the, the, the passage that we're going to look at today reminded me of. Uh, it's really not a story as much as to tell you about a dog that we had, my family had when I was growing up. Uh, w- <laughs> this dog's name was Buster, and Buster was a terrible dog. You ever have a, t- like, you know, have terrible dogs? Like, the Buster was a terrible dog. Buster was a beagle and uh, loved to dig, and uh, like, no matter what we did, like, he, he would always dig out, of the, out from under the fence. Like, we did the whole electric fence thing and, like, try to shock him to keep him to stay. And he still, like, he didn't, he was immune to that or whatever. Or he just would get away. We, we actually laid cement, like, dug cement out under, and dug holes underneath a lot of our fence area where he would dig out. And then laid cement so that, thinking that would, and he would still find a way to get out. And whenever he would get out, it was my brother Ben and, and my job to get on our bikes and to go chase Buster. And so we would, we lived in a big neighborhood. We'd get on our bikes. We would just start riding. We had no idea where he is. I mean, usually it's like, you know, we, it's been, we had no, long, no idea how long he'd been gone. We just recognized, hey, where's Buster? Like, oh, great. Get on the bike. And so we'd get on and we're just shouting his name, trying to find him. Sometimes we'd call our friends and be like, hey, Buster's out. Want to help? And so we would all just like go all over the place trying to find him. And then when we would find him, well, you know, you think he would come to us. But he would not come to us. He would continue to run. And so then it's all out chasing. You're like ditching your bike and you're running through people's yards and, and like into their backyards at times and like jumping in their bushes and in their garden and, and you're you know, yelling you're sorry to people as you run by them. But like you're trying to get the dog. And then finally when you would get Buster, you'd pick him up and you couldn't like, I don't know why. I was thinking about this this week. I don't know why we never brought a leash whenever we chased him, but we never did. And so we would like go and we would just have to pick him up and carry him back. And so Ben, either, either I'm carrying Buster and Ben's got my bike and his bike. So he's walking both bikes or he's got Buster and I'm walking both bikes. But it was just this terrible, he was a terrible dog. Terrible. It just makes me mad thinking about him. But um, <laughs> the reason I, I, I tell you that story is because, I mean, Buster, it reminds me a lot of the nation of Israel and even a lot like us when it comes to our relation with God. Because um, Buster, like we love Buster. Like, I mean, I'm, I just told you I, I hated him. But, but for a long time, I loved him. <laughs> we, uh, but like we fed him. We took care of him. We were a loving family to him. And yet he would always run from us and never come back. And we have to always go out and get him. And guys, if you've been tracking with us of the last few weeks in our series in the book of Malachi, which we actually are going to wrap up next week. But the, throughout this whole series, what we've been seeing is that the the, the Children of God, the nation of Israel, were a lot like Buster, my dog. They would run from God. That they would, uh, like, in the most offensive ways, just say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Or they would, they would just take off and, and, and neglect God. And so we've seen where they would, like, you know, they're, not, they're offering God these, these terrible sacrifices. They're not offering their best. They're offering, begrudgingly offering their leftovers. Uh, that they are uh, be treating each other unjustly, that they are leading each other astray from God, 
that they are calling God's character, his love into question, and his justice, his goodness into question, saying, God, are you even good? I mean, like, this is how they're interacting with each other and with God. They're being unfaithful to God. They're being unfaithful to one another. And yet, amazingly, God begins this book by saying, I have loved you. I have loved you. I love you. I will always love you. This is my posture towards you, even though you run from me. And here's what you need to know. If you continue to run, I will continue to run after you. If you go, I'll go after you. Like God will get on his bike and come chase us down, if you will. If you want to go back to the dog analogy, it's no, no bike for God. But it's like that. That's what I'm thinking. So let me read this passage for us and just have that in mind. Because, man, I just have been in awe of the character of God, what this passage shows us about God's character. And so we're going to be in Malachi chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 6 through 12. And what we're going to see in this passage is God's call to return to him, God's call to return, the way to return, and then the reason to return. So that's where we're going. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, follow along. It says, uh, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, let me, let me stop there. Um, again, all week I have been amazed about what these verses tell us about the, the character of God. Like, think about this. Throughout Malachi, we, we have seen how they, the people of Israel just have run away from him in the most offensive ways. And, and he says here that that is not new, <laughs> right? He says, ever since your ancestors, like dating back, you know, forever since the beginning, this has been your practice, Israel. You run from me. You run away from me. You abandon me. And yet God says, here's my offer. Return to me and I'll return to you. And in this passage, we see that the reason that that's his posture, that's his offer, is because he doesn't change. I mean, it's a strong statement, right? He says, Man, I don't change. If I did, I would destroy you. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, well, that's a happy thought. Um, but the reason that he doesn't destroy us is because God doesn't relate to us according to what we do, but according to who he is. Now, you see that there? It's because I don't change, God says, that I don't destroy you. It's not because you behave. It's not because you do the right things, I don't destroy you. It's because of who God is. That's what infects, that's what impacts how he relates to us. I just love that about our God. Because I don't change. I don't give you what you deserve. Because I don't change. My posture to you, no matter how long you run, and have the most offensive ways you run away from me, I say return to me, and I will return to you. Um, this week I've been thinking a lot about the fact that God would make that like just sweeping promise and just realizing like how different that is of how I am, and I think most of us are set up to relate to people 
like how we naturally relate to people, like within a relationship with someone, I think we all have some kind of sense, maybe we draw the line at different places, but all kind of, some kind of sense, like if I'm in a relationship with somebody and if they do X, if they offend me in this way, if they hurt me in this way, then there's going to come a point where, the, you know, the relationship is done. The bridge is burnt. Like we're, there's you know, no crossing that line. You cross that line, we're, we're, we're done. And like I'm, you know, if, you know, if, if your husband and your wife has an affair and, and she, like, she cheats on you and cheats on you and cheats on you, like you think there'd, be, there'd come a point in time where you, the husband, would say, okay, that's it. Like I can't, I can't do this any longer. Like that, you've bri- you have burnt that bridge. I don't care what you do from this point on, what you say, how you try to fix yourself. Like we're done. There's no coming back to me. And like if, if a husband was to say that to his unfaithful wife, we would say, yeah, that makes sense. Man, yeah, I mean, protect yourself. That's good for you. You got to draw a line and all that kind of stuff. I mean, even Jesus does say, like, you got permission to divorce when your husband or wife has been sexually immoral. And so you say, okay, well, you know, committed adultery. You say, okay, it was like, yeah, like, you got freedom. Draw that line. No one would judge you, cut it off. Because look at how they've wronged you. Guys, do you see what God's saying here? He doesn't have that line. Like, is that not amazing? Like, God says, no matter what, return to me, my posture is, I will return to you. No matter what, return to me, I will return to you. Friends, let me just, as we get started, let me just ask you, like, if you've been running from God, there are areas in your lives where you refuse to submit to God, where you say, okay, you know, you can have me up to this point, God, but I will not give you this. You need to know God's posture towards you is return to me, I will return to you. If you have sinned in such a grievous way, you're embarrassed to ever tell anybody about this thing. And you think, man, there is no way God could ever forgive me. I hear this, friends. Return to me and I'll return to you. That's what God says to you. If you have sinned and you think, okay, like, yeah, perhaps maybe if I you know, ask for forgiveness and I start doing the right things, and perhaps at some point in time God will accept me back in, but I doubt that it will ever be like it once was. Like it, he could, you know, maybe he will let me in, but on the outskirts, like I won't be one of his real children, but I could be some kind of stepchild that messed up a lot, but I still, he has to put up with me. Like if that's what you think that your relationship with God's going to be like because of things you've done, listen to him. Return to me and I will return to you. Not in part, not if you jump through the right hoops. Fully, that's his posture towards you guys. That's the amazing grace of our God. That is his amazing grace. Now you think, okay, well, what exactly does it look like to return to him? And it's helpful to know that this word in Hebrew that we translate here, return, is the same word that can be translated repent, 
And so repent, it has this it's the idea of changing your mind and therefore changing your actions. It's not simply changing your actions. It's a mind change first and foremost, but that does impact your actions, okay? And so this returning is this place where you would say, in fact, we'll see it in this context of this passage. A good example would be to say, like, if you don't trust God, you don't trust that he's got you and that his way is best and that he is life and all those things. You don't trust him, and so you're going to go your own way. Returning or repenting would look like you say, no, no, I, I, I see that I've been wrong about that and that God actually is trustworthy. So you, you change your belief, change your mind, and that then leads to a change of actions, and then you start obeying God because you now believe he is trustworthy. That's the turn. That's the idea. And in this passage, God gets real specific about how he calls the nation to return to him. But what's interesting is that when he says this, he says, return to me, and I will return to you. Look at how Israel responds. Go back to the passage, last part of verse 7. They say this. But you ask, how are we to return? How are we to return? Okay, it's not super clear in this translation, but it's helpful to know that there, the, the emphasis of this is not, okay, how do we return? Like, just tell us, God, if this is what you're like and you're this gracious to us, just tell me how to return. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, how are we to return? And the reason that they're saying it in that way is because they, it's coming from this point where they think they're not lost. Like, they're saying, how are we to return? We haven't gone anywhere. That's the idea behind this statement, much more clear in Hebrew than it is in this English translation. But that's what they're saying. I mean, how, you know, not how can we return? Tell us, God. No, it's how are we to return? Like, we haven't gone anywhere. We're not, we're not lost. In fact, one of the commentaries I was studying uh, this past week, he puts it this way, uh, Robbie Gallaty in his commentary on Malachi. He says, God's people are in a precarious situation. They stand shamelessly before a holy God, and they respond, God, how can we return? We're not even lost. Now, why do you think that they wouldn't have realized they had wandered from God? Well, it's because, like we've seen in this book, like they hadn't all out, like, dismissed God. They hadn't said, like, like they, they haven't denied God's existence, right? In fact, in Malachi chapter 1, they're still clearly, they're bringing offerings to God. They're just not bringing their best. They're not happy about it, but they're still going through these religious motions. And so when God says, hey, like, you've wandered away from me, they say, well, what are you talking about? Like, we're still doing the stuff. You know, we still know you're there. God, he's not after their religious activity, right? He's after their hearts, and their hearts had absolutely wandered from him. But because they're still going through some motions or they still say, okay, yeah, I still believe, they would say, no, no, we haven't gone anywhere. And God says, no, 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 you have. Absolutely you've gone. You have wandered away. Yes, can we not do the same thing? Like it is, it is absolutely possible. In fact, I would say that without a doubt it's true at some point in time. It's somewhere in here where you've got two people sitting next to each other at a worship service, and one of you is here with a heart in love with God, and one of you here who's wondered, your heart has wandered completely away from God. 
And if you just judge by your attendance at a worship service, you would never know. If you think that the attendance here is the thing that would show that you've wandered away from God or not wandered away from God, if you're here, especially on Marathon Sunday, then yeah, you, clearly you haven't wandered away. I mean, you could think that, but like, how do you know? See, God calls us to love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. But if you just get used to just going through some motions then you can lower that bar to a place where if God said, hey, you've wandered away, you'd say, well, what are you even talking about? It's like you've forgotten. Now, God wants all of you. Have you wandered away from God? And if you evaluate right now, if God were to say, hey, return to me and return to you, would you say, well, I don't need to return? Perhaps you don't, but perhaps you do and you don't realize it it would be worthwhile to evaluate, wouldn't it? That's where Israel is. They don't even recognize that they've wandered off. But here, God in his grace still answers the question, how do, how do we return? He says this, and now let me say, they will get into the part of the passage that's on the way to return, and God gets specific with them as a key way to return, and it's going to be uncomfortable for us. Like this was the feel-good part of the message. God's awesome and gracious, and if you return to him, he will return to you. But then when he says here, he starts talking about money, and um, you're thinking, I can't believe I came on Marathon Sunday, right? And talk about money, but... God goes to the topic of money because what he's after is their heart. And he wants them to trust him. And he says, this is the key way to help you learn to trust me, to quit wandering off and going your own way, provide for yourselves and think that you've got life figured out. You've got to trust me with the area of money. This is the way, this is the key way to return to him. And we might say, well, God, is there another way? Like, you know, like, I mean, that certainly there are other options. Money, okay, I could see that that could be one way. Can you get into some other ways? Maybe I'll go with option B or, or C. But guys, listen to how strongly God points them to this topic as the key way to return. He says this in verse 8 and 9. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Okay. Strong language, right? Like robbing God, like seriously? And God's saying, like, this is what you're doing? You're robbing me? Now, okay. Why does he point to this and say this is the way to return to him? Is it, let me tell you why it's not. It's not because God needs money, all right? It's not like God saying, okay, you, I will, you can return to me if, if, if you just get, pay me back because I've really been wanting to buy this thing, but I just don't have the money because you keep robbing me. That's not, that's not what God is saying. It's, it's not because he needs money. In fact, he owns everything. Scripture makes that so clear uh, over and over and over again. I don't have the time to bring all the passages, so let me just show you one. Psalm 24.1 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. See, guys, God owns everything. He doesn't say this as a way to return to him because he needs money. He has all of it. In fact, the idea of robbing God implies that it's God's money in the first place, right? And so you can't rob someone of something they don't already own. <laughs> I own it, but you are just misusing it. 
See, the idea here is that we are all, biblically speaking, money managers of God. We're, we're stewards or brokers or something like that. Like, we, we are the people that God entrusts his money to, but it's still his money. And then he asks us to use it according to how he says to use it. To spend it according to what he says and according to his purposes. But when we don't, we are, in a sense, robbing him. Just like if you had an investor that was a broker and you saying, I want you to put the money here. And they just say, no, I'm not going to do what you say. And I'm not going to uh, use your money according to your purposes. I'm going to do what I think is best. And I might just use your money. <laughs> However, we would say, that's not okay. You're robbing me. That's what, that's, that's what God is saying here. Now, why would we not use his money according to how he's told us to use it? Why? Perhaps there's lots of answers to that, but I, I think at least a few top of my head would be this. It's because uh, we don't trust him. We think that if we use the money according to how he says to use the money, that he might not provide more money. And so we got to hoard the money when it comes to us. Or it could be that we're not on the same page as he is. And so he says to use it to advance his kingdom. And you think, no, 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 I'd rather use the money that you give me to advance my kingdom. <laughs> to get me my stuff. And so we say, okay, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it according to you. I'm not going to spend according to your purposes. Or whatever it is, I mean, this, but I think that if you think about it, you evaluate, why would we not use God's money as a way that he tells us to use it? I think it all comes down to heart issues. All relational heart issues between us and God. And guys, that's the answer to the question, why would he point to money as a specific call to return to him? Because money is so connected to our heart. And that is what he's after. He's not after the money. He's after our hearts. But they're connected. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, right? When he says that, um, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, he calls us to trust him with money because money reveals where our heart is and has the power to redirect our heart somewhere else. So if you would start honoring God with your money, trusting him with your money, then your trust in God, God's value in your life, treasure of God in your life, will, will increase. You see, Israel was not trusting God. They were going their own way. So God says, hey, return to me. How do we return? Trust me with money. Your hearts will not wander off. That will bring your heart back to me. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Does that make sense? It's like, yes. Yeah, begrudgingly. Yeah, I guess I could see what he's saying there. <laughs> okay. Um, I want, let me make a quick aside here. Um, I don't know what any of you guys give. All right? I want you all to know that. All right, so if I make eye contact with you when I'm talking about this, it's not because I'm singling you out, all right? Just, just know that. 
<laughs> I, uh, that's one of the things that I just, I don't know, and, and it's purposeful. I don't want the temptation to ever treat y'all differently based on what you give or if you don't give or anything like that. So if you feel conviction, it's not because I've looked at you, it's because uh, the Holy Spirit is alive and active, <laughs> all right? So, but let's talk about this idea of the tithe, right? Because this is what God points to. He says, how are we robbing you? With your tithes and offerings. And so the tithe, we should understand what that is. If you don't know, a tithe just means the tenth, and it's the idea, the practice of setting aside 10% of your income and giving that to God or giving it to accomplish God's purposes or as God has said. So for ministry and for charity, those kind of things. Like in the Old Testament, the Old Testament tithe went to uh, provide for the Levites and the priests and the sacrificial system. They also gave the offerings, tithes and offerings, they also gave offerings in addition that would go towards caring for the, the orphans and the fatherless and the widows and the poor, the refugees in their country. And so that's what the tithe did. That was the purpose of it. And it was clearly commanded in the Old Testament that God's people were to tithe. But the question then becomes, well, what about in the New Testament? Are we also still commanded to tithe? And uh, that's a fair question because in the New Testament, never are we commanded to tithe. There's no, there's no, tithe, no command that we as Christians should set aside 10%. So we think, oh, well, why does that, did that, did that go away? And now we're no longer under that ex you know, expectation. What is it? So let me answer that real quick or try to quickly. Um, to, there's only one place that the tithe is even mentioned in the New Testament. And, uh, it's by Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. And it, it's a significant reference. Here's what Jesus says. He's speaking to the Pharisees. And he says this to them. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. And he says, Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God, woe to you. So you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Now, uh, it's helpful to see that Jesus affirms the, the practice of tithing here, even all the way down to your herb garden, which is, you think, man, that's kind of carried away. But uh, he says, no, no, that's a good thing. You should do that. But what he calls them out for is this mindset that if I give 10% of everything I have to God, then the 90% is mine to do whatever I want with. And when it comes to the issue of love and justice, if that requires more than 10%, then I'm off the hook. And Jesus says, no, you've missed it. It's good that you're doing the tithe, but don't think that you don't need to also do whatever love requires of you, whatever justice requires of you. And guys, that's where the rest of the New Testament picks up on the concept of tithe. You see, um, what you see in the rest of the New Testament is that the gospel of Jesus, God the Son's life given for us, is now held up as the standard of generosity. And believers are called in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus, to give liberally, generously and cheerfully 
See, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, it says this, Each one must do as he had made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you don't do it just to meet some kind of standard, and you're doing it begrudgingly like the tithe. No, no, now you give cheerfully in light of how God has so graciously given Jesus for us. So Jesus graciously give his own life for us. Now we're compelled to give cheerfully. Or here's another verse, 2 Corinthians 8.3 says this, where Paul commends the poverty-stricken Macedonians like this. He says, they gave, the Macedonians gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Because this is a stark contrast to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke 11. He says, no, they weren't just trying to meet some standard. No, they gave to their means and beyond. They did what love would require. They did what justice would require. And they did it cheerfully. And one more verse 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, Paul says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, in the New Testament, what is stressed is not the idea of meeting a minimum limit, but instead what is stressed is cheerfully unleashing maximum liberality and generosity in light of Jesus' generosity. For Jesus did not only spill, just spill 10% of his blood, did he? he? He spilled all of his blood that all who would turn to him could be saved. And in seeing that God would give all, we now, New Testament saints, say, okay, there's not, I'm not putting a cap on what I will give. It's not 10% and nothing else. It's whatever you want. It's all of me in light of what Jesus has done. I read multiple commentaries, four different commentaries prepared for this message. And guys, I'm going to just say all of them said that tithing is meant to be the training wheels for faith in God. That what we see in the Old Testament is where to begin. And what we see in the New Testament and the generosity of Jesus in the gospel is something that will compel us to give cheerfully beyond that without limit. And I, I don't know how that strikes you, um, but here's what I want to put in front of you. I think that's what God's saying in this passage. You want to trust me? You want to see that I'm trustworthy? Honor me with your money. Trust me with your money. For where your money is, your heart is also. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. And so, um, Give. Give generously. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you have to give 10% or more of your income to Midtown Church. I just want to be real clear about this. This message is not about you giving to Midtown. Um, I think, and I, I won't spend a lot of time here, but I, I think that there's a great case to be made that you supporting your local church that serves you and that you're a part of, partnering with to get the gospel to our city. Like, it makes sense that this would be one of the key places that you would give, but you are not at all restricted to only giving here, okay? And so giving towards missionaries and giving towards agencies and organizations that are uh, honoring God and, and helping people, loving and serving people, man, do that. Please do that. But, man, let's give. Let's 
be generous. Let's trust God. Let's help our hearts not wander from him. Let's return to him in the way he said to return to him. Now, the other thing I would say here is um, if you think, okay, well, gosh, if 10% is where I'm supposed to start, there's no way. I want you to hear uh, grace, friends. Remember, grace. That's what God is. That's what God is like. Remember the whole first part of the message? He doesn't change, and so you don't do all these things to get him to love you and get him to care for you. Oh, my, no. No, remember Malachi verse 2, chapter 1? I have loved you, says the Lord Almighty. That comes first. You don't give to get God to accept you. You give because he already does. And so start where you are. If it's 1%, start at 1% with the aim towards I'm going to get to 10%, and God's going to graciously help you along the way. And friends, also, if you're already at 10%, if you're tithing, then I would say don't see it as a limit. 10%, but I'm done. I've been doing that. No, let the generosity of Christ compel you to continue to grow in the grace of giving. Not in order to get God to love you, but because he already does. Um, it's, it, it's, it's that whole idea, because this is what God is like. That's what Jesus, that's what God in this passage points to as the reason for giving. I mean, sorry, sorry the reason for returning to him. So at the beginning, it's God's call to return, and then here's the way to return. And now, the last, these last three verses, it's the reason to return, and the reason is completely tied to God's incredible character, that he truly is trustworthy. Here's what he says. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and vines in your fields will not drop the fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all of the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. As this is God saying, return to me, and I will return to you. This is God saying, quit trusting in yourselves to provide for your needs. Instead, bring in the whole tithe, that's what it says, and see, God says, and see if I don't take care of you. I mean, look, look at this invitation here. This is one of the more rare cases in all of Scripture where God actually invites you to test him. And here's what he says. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Test me. Trust me with your money. Tithe. Test me and see if I don't provide for you. Now listen, these verses have been abused in the past. Prosperity preachers, if you're familiar with that whole line of, of false teaching, like they'll point to this and they'll say, man, yeah, and this is why if you would give $500 today, then you will get $5,000 by next Sunday and all that kind of stuff. And like that's, because I want you to understand, that's not what this is saying. That's not what God is promising you here. But here is what he's promising. The nation of Israel, and we can bank on this as well, is that if you trust me, with your money, I will provide. You will see I'm trustworthy. You will see that I'm trustworthy. And guys, I am preach that with conviction because I believe God, and this is what God says. 
He says it here. He says it over and over in Scripture. If you trust me, I will be faithful. If you trust me, you'll see I'm faithful. He says, if you don't worry about money because I love you. So seek first my kingdom. Everything else will be added to you. You can do that because of I love you. I'm trustworthy. I care about you. See, I believe this, friends, and I want you to believe this because God is trustworthy. But I also believe this, not just because God says it, but because I have seen it played out over and over again in me and Chris's life. And I just want to tell you a couple stories, and I hesitate in telling this because I don't want any, any of the attention on me, but like, I just want you to know, like, I, we can speak from experience. Like, when Krista and I felt called by God to reflect his heart for the, for the uh, orphan, which led us to adopt our son Enoch, when we started that process, we knew it was going to cost about $30,000. Well, we had about $12,000 to our name at that time. And so we weren't real sure how that was going to work out. But we said yes. And we went for it. And at the end of that time, when we, we spent a, a month in Uganda, and we got back to our house and you know, looking at bills, and I've got bank account open, and it's like, okay, we have $87 to our name. And I'm not, like, I'm not saying, like, we ha- well, we had our retirement fund, and we had, the, you know, we had a college fund, and all that. Like, we didn't have any funds, okay? <laughs> there was no investments. All we had was $87. Maybe some change laying around the house, but $87 and some change in the cushion of the couch. That's, that's all we had. But here's the thing. We never missed a meal. Here, here's the thing. When we had $12,000, Enoch's adoption cost over $30,000. You know what? We didn't go in debt. Over $20,000 was given to fund our adoption from, through friends and our church family. Soon after adopting Enoch, we had a family that, that is awesome um, buy us a car. Not give us like one of their hand-me-down cars. They, they just bought a car for us. It's the Prius that Krista drives. A year and a half after adopting Enoch, we planted Midtown Church. And, and God's incredible provision, in that year and a half, our savings had already gone up to over $4,000. And so at the charter service of Midtown Church, when about 38 of us committed together to start this church, we gave a first fruits offering to help with the startup fees, with buying the first time cost stuff like speakers and whatever else things that we had to buy. And Chris and I felt as we prayed that God was leading us to give that $4,000 in the savings. And so we bottomed out again. And I mean, again, like we didn't have any other money. Like we had some money in our checking account for that week's bills and nothing else. And um, we didn't miss a meal. When my car got totaled, someone gave me their car. The red truck, the Ford F-150 that's hauling our trailer right now, someone gave that truck to me. Both of the cars that we drive were just given to us. God aligned it for the house that we live in. We are currently paying about half of what we should be paying to live in that house in Central Austin. 
just from the generosity of our next-door neighbors who are the landlords of our house. They just they wanted a family there. God provided for us to be there. Some of y'all have been to my house. It's awesome. It's our dream house. We can afford it because God miraculously set it up to be able to pay for that. As we had a family member give us $10,000 unexpectedly. As we have money in the bank, we have two cars, we're living in our dream house. But hear this, we also have have an awesome son. And we have an amazing church family. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it, friends. Test him in this. Test him. Our God is trustworthy. Return to him. He returns to you. This is what our God is like. Oh, I want you to know him to that degree, that your confidence in his trustworthiness and his love for you would ring true when you read these words. Say, how can that happen? God says, don't rob me. Obey me in regards to your money. See what happens. Test me. I'm not promising you that people will give you cars. I'm not promising that you will get all this. I'm not, I don't, but here's what I will say because it's what God says. He'll prove trustworthy. Your hearts won't wander from him. You'll find that he's the best. Friends, test him. If you're still on the fence, my stories weren't enough. Let me point you to one more story. It's what we remember every week when we take communion. It's the true story that God loves you so much, that he is so incredible, that he's so full of grace, that when you absolutely didn't deserve it, what you deserved and I deserved is to be destroyed. Instead, what he did is he sent his son, Jesus, who willingly came to be destroyed, to have his body broken and his blood spilled so that you and I would have the opportunity to return to God. See, God first came after us in Jesus, dying for us that we would be able to return to him. And when we turn to him in Christ, we know that he, God's arms are open wide for us at all times because Jesus paid for our sins. Guys, think about what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 32, when it says, Did God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Guys, you need proof that God's trustworthy and that he loves you. Look no further than God giving you Jesus. Jesus giving you his life. <laughs> Does he love you? Can you trust him with 10% or more of your income? <laughs> if you place your faith in Christ, you're trusting him with your eternity. He's trustworthy, friends. As we take communion, which is open to all, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you come up and take it here or in the back. And when you take this communion, may you say, God, in light of Jesus, I know you're trustworthy. Help me trust you with every area. Let me pray. And then we can, communion table will be open to you.
Heavenly Father, God, I pray. I pray that you would bring these truths home, that we would see just how incredible you are, that you're this gracious, that there's no line that we can cross, that you would write us off, but your call to us again and again and again and again is return to me and I will return to you. And God, I pray that you would help us not just return with lip service, but Lord, with true repentance. And Lord, as you say here, one clear indication of that is if we'll trust you with our money. God, may we trust you with our money. And may we, as a result of how you work, find you more trustworthy than we could have imagined. And that you would strengthen our love for you, and that you would strengthen our, our, our dependence on you, and you would strengthen our joy in you, and that you would be glorified. God, I pray that as we take communion, you would bring home the truth of just, again, how trustworthy you are. That you would do this. Instead of destroying us, God, you, you had your son die for us. That, Jesus, you chose to be destroyed. That we could be redeemed. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us in a way we des- definitely do not deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.